You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 6, with Daniel Pell. Good evening. In this presentation, we're going to really take a good look at a prophecy that has been truly um, a prophecy that many have studied and a prophecy that is a detailed picture of history in many ways. Um, Daniel chapter 11 is our subject material this evening, and I entitled this, me this meeting, this presentation, A Peek Behind the Scenes, A Peek Behind the Scenes. And Daniel chapter 11 is the most detailed prophecy in the book of Daniel. It uh, follows, again, the same uh, principle that we have discovered earlier, the, the principle of repetition and enlargement, where you will have one prophecy and it's repeated and enlarged in the next and so in the next. And Daniel 11 is really the last great grand prophecy in the book of Daniel. And we have a lot of detail in that prophecy regarding the kingdoms uh, and their rulers that we have already discovered a little bit about in the other prophecies that we've studied so far. So I'm happy that uh, you've been coming along and following along with the series and um, we have been studying prophecies in, in chapter 2 and in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 and many of the things that we have discovered about these kingdoms is now going to be enlarged in this great grand prophecy of Daniel chapter 11. And so let us have a word of prayer and then we'll get straight into our material for tonight. Father in heaven, thank you that we can study your word again. We ask that you'll be with us, that you will speak to us and through us, and uh, Lord, that your word may be made clear, and that we may have an understanding of this great grand prophecy that we have in the book of Daniel. For this we pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Daniel chapter 11 is the great grand prophecy. Chapter 10, of course, we're also going to cover because in our last presentation we, we finished with chapter 9. Uh, chapter 10 is really an introduction to chapter 11. And so we want to cover chapter 10 and 11 tonight. 11 being the grand prophecy and chapter 10 being the introduction to that prophecy. Uh, chapter 12, by the way, is really also part of this prophecy, and we will cover that in our next uh, presentation, which is the last chapter of the book of Daniel. So we are coming closer to the end, uh, and yet we still have before us um, one of the most detailed prophecies, or if not the most detailed prophecy in Scripture, being Daniel chapter 11. Now, let us look a little bit at the introduction there in Daniel chapter 10. We're not going to read the entire chapter just because of time's sake, but uh, Daniel chapter um, 10 gives us an idea of what is going on behind the scenes, uh, what is the backdrop to this grand prophecy of Daniel chapter 11. Not only does Daniel chapter 10 give us an, an, an idea of that, but even the previous prophecies that we've already studied give us an idea of that because they really set the stage for this grand prophecy that we're studying tonight. Um, I'm not going to go over this all again, but you just see here a picture on the screen uh, which reminds us of the various prophecies that were studied there in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 and the various kingdoms that have been represented through um, these prophecies, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome and papal Rome. That has been the, uh, the red line through these prophecies, these nations that have been revealed. Uh, in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, it began 
began, the prophecies began with Babylon. In Daniel chapter 8, the prophecy began with Medo-Persia. And so it is also in Daniel chapter 11, the prophecy begins with Medo-Persia. And so Daniel chapter 11, it is a long chapter. It is a detailed description of many things that happened in history. But um, what is going to make it easy for us is that we can right away look at what we have already studied. And basically what Daniel 11 is covering is a detailed description of the kingdoms that we have already discovered. Being the kingdoms of Medo-Persia, Greece, pagan Rome, and then finally papal Rome. And yet in this repetition and enlargement, we will, see, we will find a lot of details, a lot of incredible truths that we will be able to uncover that we've not seen in the previous prophecies, in the previous visions. And so, but, but at least you have here already a, an outline, uh, the big picture of, of the kingdoms that we're looking at in Daniel 11 as we move into this incredible prophecy. Now Daniel chapter 10, um, verse 1, listen to what it says here as we are introduced, as we have a little bit of background um, before we are launched into Daniel Daniel 11. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. Now, this was the vision that he first did not understand in chapter 8. Remember the vision? What did it deal with? It was the vision of the 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. That was the vision that he did not understand first. But then in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel gave him an understanding. And so um, he understood what was the time period given to his people. And ultimately then, as we come now to Daniel chapter 10, he says, I understood the vision and that it was pertaining to many days, many days in the future. Now, Daniel chapter 10 and verse 2 and 3, it says, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food. No meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now, why is Daniel in a state of mourning? Why is Daniel in a state of sorrow? As we look at the time period in which we find ourselves here, it is the time that, the, uh, that Cyrus is ruling. And so what could be anticipated and expected is the soon release of the Jews. The Jews would be able to go back and restore Jerusalem. This was the prophecy that had been, had been given. They would be 70 years in Babylon, according to Jeremiah, and then they would be released. And so Daniel is mourning and in sorrow because there is a struggle going on. Cyrus being willing to release the Jews, and yet there were many other things going on that caused him not to be able to, um, to, to, to give a clear decree for the people to return. And as they were returning, several of them were already returning, they met a lot of um, obstacles as they went back and tried to rebuild uh, the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. There were other nations that were there that made it very difficult for them. And so Daniel is in sorrow uh, because of these things, and he is fasting, he is pleading with the Lord, and um, listen to what uh, the Bible says, listen to what happens as he is dedicating uh, his time in prayer and fasting. It says in verse 12 and 13, it says, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. 
Here again, the angelic, an angelic being is coming to guide him in an understanding of what is going to happen. Now, in verse 12 and 13, it gives us a little bit of an insight into what was going on. It says, and this is the, the words of, of, of this angel to um, Daniel the prophet. The angel says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. It really reveals a cosmic battle because here the angel of God, Gabriel, uh, comes to Daniel and says, I wanted to come to you, but I was withheld by the prince of Persia. Now, the prince of Persia, being Cyrus, the very one, and Darius, the very one that was going to release the Jews and allow them to return to Jerusalem, um, was, was, was in a battle whether or not that was going to go through, whether or not that degree was going to go through. Because we know that there are other powers at work, according to the scripture, it talks about powers of darkness that are doing everything in their might, everything within their power to hinder uh, the prophecies from coming to pass. And so there's really this spiritual battle going on and this verse here in Daniel chapter 10 just kind of draws back the curtain and gives us an understanding of that battle that is taking place that even Gabriel himself is convincing the prince of Persia regarding the prophecy and to get the prophecy started it would start with the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem and yet there are battles going on regarding this prophecy regarding these um, <coughs> regarding these events and so even Michael, it says, had to come to help. Now, Michael is another name for Jesus. Michael actually means the one who is like God. And so even Jesus uh, himself had to come to help in this spiritual struggle, in this, in this uh, cosmic battle um, that was going on behind the scenes. We don't see these things. When we read about prophecy, we learn about kingdoms that come and fall. We look at the historic events of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. But behind the scenes, my friends, a lot is going on. Behind the scenes, the angels of God are bringing about these things, but there are also powers of evil that are trying to hinder or um, stop these events from happening as God has um, uh, foretold that they would come to pass. And so it just gives us a little insight there in Daniel chapter 10 as to that spiritual battle or that uh, cosmic battle that is raging um, on this planet. Now, let's go get right into Daniel chapter 11, since it is uh, quite a long prophecy. As you see in your Bibles, Daniel 11 has 45 verses. It is um, the longest, uh, one of the longer um, chapters in the book of Daniel. And in verse 1, listen to what it says. It really starts right there again with the kingdom of Medo-Persia. It says, also in the first year of Darius... The Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This is Daniel writing here. And um, he, uh, and, and, and he writes um, the words that have been given to him that uh, Gabriel himself, the angel himself, had been strengthening and confirming Darius so that he could pass the degree for the Jews to return to Jerusalem. That was really um, what, of course, um, was going to begin uh, this grand prophecy that we have looked at. Um, when you look at the 
king at power at that time, Darius and also uh, Cyrus, which were both ruling at that time, uh, they were used by God to support the rebuilding of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, these prophecies were given uh, long before even Cyrus was born. Um, we remember the prophecy that we looked at in an earlier presentation that was given by the prophet Isaiah that Cyrus would come and he would be the deliverer for the people of God, that they would be able to return and rebuild uh, Jerusalem. So right there in Daniel chapter 11 and the first verse, it begins with Darius the Mede, and that he was strengthened in this um, work that he was going to do in releasing the Jews. Now, look at verse 2, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 2. It says, Now and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall steer up all against the realm of Greece. Now, what you're going to notice um, earlier on here in Daniel chapter 11 is that the language of Daniel chapter 11 is very literal. It is very plain. It is not really like in Daniel chapter 2, we have symbols of an image and metals that represent kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 7 and 8, we have beasts that represent kingdoms. Here in Daniel chapter 11, we have no metals. We have no beasts. It's just plain language. And that makes it um, even very fascinating because it is so detailed describing what exactly was going to happen. And as we go through this prophecy, never forget that we're looking here at a prophecy that was given um, between 500 and 600 years before Christ in the days of the Medes and the Persians, and yet is giving a historic picture of detailed events that were going to happen um, upon the scene of, earth's, uh, of this earth. And so it's absolutely fascinating to bear that in mind as we go through this. Now, what, what do we read about here? We read about that there would be a number of kings that would come after Darius. As a matter of fact, it lists four kings would come, four kings. Now, those, and the fourth king, according to the prophecy, would be richer than all the other kings. And indeed, there were four kings that followed King Darius. These are the four kings that followed Darius. It was Cambyses, Smyrdas, Darius, and Xerxes. And King Xerxes was by far richer than all the others. So the prophecy really came to pass there. Now, uh, Exerxes, you might remember the story of Esther in the Bible. That story occurred in the days of Exerxes. Um, Exerxes is another word for Artaxerxes, which was the king, um, and uh, Esther was the wife of that king at that time. Uh, he was very rich, uh, far richer than the other others, according to the prophecy, and this indeed came to pass. And this was also the king that stirred up the nations under him to fight against Greece, Exerxes, he went to war against Greece. Now, verse 3 tells us, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. So then a mighty king would come. There would be four kings um, after uh, in Medo-Persia, and the fourth would be far richer than the others. And then another king would come, a mighty king would arise, and rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Well, this is none other than Alexander the Great that came on the scene. Alexander the Great, which led the Grecian army, and which led really um, the army to victory against the Medes and the Persians. And Alexander the Great... Uh, he died in 323 B.C., 
And it was a sudden death after a sudden illness. We spoke about this earlier, how every time he would gain a victory, um, he would also drink and celebrate that victory. And, you know, he was conquering the then known world in a rapid speed of eight years. And it just happened to be that he drank too much and he died at a very young age. Now, it took about 25 years later that a a coalition of four of his generals emerged that started ruling the empire. And look at what it says in verse 4. This is so detailed. It's so powerful, these prophecies. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 4 says, And when he has arisen, talking about Alexander the Great, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Now, the son of um, Alexander the Great was too young to take the kingdom. He was only a boy. And so indeed, from his own posterity, there was no one to take the kingdom. And so it was divided, exactly as the prophecy tells us, into four. We also found this in Daniel 7 with the leopard with the four, four heads. We found this in Daniel chapter 8 with the he-goat and the, and the one big horn broke up and four came up in the place. And here in Daniel chapter 11, without going even into symbolic language, we have just plainly stated that the kingdom would be divided into four. And that's exactly what happened. And And who were those four? Well, that was Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander. These were the four generals of Alexander the Great that then took on the kingdom um, after a period um, of about 25 years of transition, and they became um, the prominent uh, rulers um, at that time. Now, take notice what happens next. In chapter 5 of Daniel chapter 11, it says, Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So it talks about one of those kings. There were four generals, four kings, and one of them would become very strong, and this is talking about the king of the south. Now, the rest of Daniel chapter 11, right here from verse 5 and onward, really describes the battle of the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, the king of the north and the king of the south, they go by different um, powers, and yet um, it, it, it continues to talk about the king of the north and the king of the south and how they are battling with each other, um, and different rulers are, 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 are ruling in the king of the north and different rulers are ruling in the king of the south, uh, or the kingdom of the south. Now, um, we began with four. Uh, and that was Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander, but only really two remained, because, uh, and those two that remained was Seleucus in the north and Ptolemy in the south. The other two were conquered, and so you really, after a while, you have no longer four kings, but you have two kings, the king of the north, Seleucus, and the king of the south, Ptolemy. Now, this is an important point that I want to bring up here because it becomes vital to our understanding of the rest of the prophecy here. And that is, as we look at this map for a moment, you will note that as we're talking about this region here, you will see that um, the region that we're talking about here is um, connected with Judah, the promised land or the glorious land. And so you have the king of the north, Seleucus, And you have the king of the south, Ptolemy, the Egyptian king. And then in between you have Judah, right? 
And so Judah becomes the buffer zone, you could say. It becomes the country uh, between these two that are battling. So Daniel chapter 11 uses a lot of time to describe these battles between the king of the north and the king of the south. And you could wonder why. I believe that one of the main reasons why it uses so much time to describe these battles is because God's people were very closely involved because they were right there in the middle. And you will read about how the king of the north invaded the king of the south and that also included Judah and Judah came under the king of the north. But then a year later or a few years later, the king of the south would come up against the king of the north and they would invade Judah. And so Judah was always either under the king of the north and the king of the south. Very, uh, there were very few moments that Judah um, actually enjoyed freedom. They were always either under the king of the north or the king of the south, either under Seleucus or uh, Antiochus, which was also the king of the north later on, or under Ptolemy, the king of the south. So Israel becomes this buffer zone. Now historians, they call this continual conflict um, of these times, they call them the, the Syrian wars, the Syrian wars. And uh, we're going to look a little bit at the details of these wars that are described here in Daniel chapter 11. So as we continue, let's read verse 6. Daniel chapter 11 and the sixth verse. It says, And at the time of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. And neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now, if you don't know anything about the historic event here, you can wonder who this is talking about and what this is talking about. But you look at the history and it becomes very interesting. To solidify peace between the northern and southern kingdoms, Antiochus, which was the king of the north at that time, marries Bernice, which is the daughter of Ptolemy II, or the king of the, the, king of the south. And um, what happened was that Bernice was killed by the former wife of Antiochus, which he divorced to marry her, which was Laodice. And after this, Laodice, she even poisoned Antiochus and put her own son on the throne. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of, uh, you know, deceit. There's a lot of things going on here in Daniel chapter 11 within these nations as they are warring uh, one with the other. Um, so Antiochus was um, the king in the north at that time. And in order to have peace, you know, they were, they were fighting and there were many wars. But in order to have peace, there was this intermarriage. And yet the intermarriage never really lasted long. And uh, what happened next is that the king of the south takes revenge because, because of the murder of Bernice. And we read about that in verse 7. It says, And from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And uh, you look at this revenge under Ptolemy III, and he attacks and he conquers the north. Um, Ptolemy III was the son of Ptolemy II and was the brother of Bernice, which was murdered in the, king of the, by the, uh, in the kingdom of the north. And so in revenge, he, he attacks the king of the north. Now verse 8 says, And he shall arise, carry their gods captive to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. 
So this is describing the prosperous rule of the king of the south, or Egypt. So there was a time period that Egypt, the southern kingdom, was prospering above um, and beyond the king of the north. Egypt had its, had its golden age, we could say. And yet, there was a lot still to happen. The very next verse, verse 9 says, Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So the king of the north would come against the king of the south, but then he would suddenly return to his own land. Now, Seleucus II, which was now king in the north at this time, attacked the southern kingdom, but he was utterly defeated and he returned very quickly. It's interesting to see the historic line of events and the prophecy in Daniel chapter 11 and how they absolutely go hand in hand. Now look at verse 10, Daniel chapter 11, verse 10. However, his sons shall steer up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and steer up strife. What's going on here? This is talking about Seleucus III and Antiochus III, and they both initiated campaigns against the south, and this was approximately in 219 BC. They are both making attacks on the south and trying to conquer it, both Seleucus III and Antiochus III. Now, this is not the end of the story. There are continually battles going on, and chapter 11, uh, chapter 11 and verse 11 tells us about another great big battle that took place. It says, and the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So the kingdom would come with a great, great multitude. As a matter of fact, when you look at the statistics of that battle that we're talking about here, it was the battle of Rapia, near the, near, which was nearby Philistine the Egyptian border. And Antiochus, the king of the north at that time, he came with 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, uh, uh, and 102 elephants. So he thought he was going to win with this, uh, this huge army, and yet he lost that battle to the king of the south. The king of the south won that battle at Rapia, near the Egyptian border. Verse 12 says, when he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. But he will not prevail. This was the victory for Ptolemy, but he did not really make the best out of it. He won that battle at Rapia, which was a very um, important battle to win, and yet he didn't really make the best out of it. And very shortly after that, uh, because he didn't manage his kingdom wisely, he lost his kingdom to the north. And in uh, verse 13, it tells us that the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former. So here he comes again. He came already with a great army, but now he comes with an even greater army and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. And this comeback was under Antiochus III. And the comeback was a strong one. And um, we read in the next verses uh, what happened there in verse 14. Verse 14. 
you know, and, and, and just bear in mind as we're reading all of this that God's people are in the midst of this continually. And so the battle, either they're under the north or they're under the south. And, and sometimes it was a matter of a year or a few years um, under which nation they were. It was continually this uncertainty. They were the buffer zone in the midst of these two kings, the Syrian wars that continued uh, for many, many years and that are described in detail here in Daniel chapter 11 as it gives us an insight into what was taking place. Verse 14 says, Now in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. That's an interesting verse. It talks about your people, and this is Gabriel talking to Daniel as a Jew. So some of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. There would be a Jewish revolt against the oppression of the south. Now you can think about this, uh, the, the, the Judah as a nation continually being oppressed by either the north or the south. Now from, from the Jewish people themselves, there is this revolt to no longer be under these powers. And they uh, were fighting against the oppression of the south at that time. And uh, this fits right into the historic picture that you see as you look at the, um, uh, look at the history of the Syrian wars and what took place. Now, verse 15 says in Daniel chapter 11, it says, So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. So we're talking here about um, a great attack that they were not able to resist. Antiochus III attacks the fortified cities in Gaza, and this happened around 201 BC. In Egypt, the Egyptians, they surrendered at that time as well. So again, the uh, Judah is now no longer under the south, but it's now again under the north. This is going forth and back, forth and back, forth and back. Absolutely um, frustrating it must have been for the Jews as a nation during this time. Now, verse 16 says, But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. Now we come to a little bit of a transition here in this prophecy. It's been given a lot of verses that have described these Syrian wars in detail and what happened between the king of the north and the king of the south and how Judah was involved. But now we come to verse 16 and we're talking about another power that is, ri that is ri rising up. This power, also known as the king of the north, described as the king of the north in chapter 11. But we're looking here at the transition from the Syrian wars to pagan Rome. Pagan Rome is now coming onto the scene. It says, but he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. No one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power, the uprising of the Roman Empire. Now, as we continue to look at these verses, you will see why um, it makes sense to identify this as the uprising of the Roman Empire, because the very next verses describe this power, and there's no doubt that this is talking about pagan Rome and how it came onto the scene. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. It says, he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of, wom uh, of woman to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Now, this is a, this is a history that actually has been... Um, uh, discussed quite a bit, even finds its, has found its place into novels and movies, uh, because I think everyone will be familiar with Cleopatra 
And here in prophecy, she is described, this mysterious lady that seemed to stand by um, Caesar, which was at that time the emperor of Rome, but ultimately turned against him. That's what the verse said. She seemed to stand by his side, uh, this woman from, from the king of the south, and yet she turned against him. Now, um, when you look at um, verse 17 that we just read, it was, of course, an attempt, again, another attempt uh, of peace towards the strong forces of the Roman Empire. They wanted to unite the Roman Empire, and so, you know, Cleopatra became the, mystery, uh, the, um, uh, the, the wife of, of uh, Julius Caesar, but ultimately it didn't hold. And uh, what we read in the next verses shows us a little bit of the struggle that went on and ultimately how uh, Caesar also came to his end. Look at verse 18 and 19. It says, after this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. This is talking about Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar would go out, would fight, and then he would come back. He would turn his face towards his own land, but in his own land, he would stumble and fall and not be found. Now, um, you might remember the history. You might remember the story of what took place. Julius Caesar, he was assassinated in his own land in 44 BC. And Cleopatra turned her affections to Mark Antony. And Mark Antony was the rival of Octavian, who was Caesar's heir. So uh, Caesar was going to be followed by Octavian, which is also known as Caesar um, Augustus, or the Emperor Augustus. And, uh, but there was this rival going on because Cleopatra sided with Mark Antony. But ultimately, Octavian uh, was able to defeat both Mark Antony and uh, Cleopatra, and both of them um, committed suicide in the end. Now, the next verse in Daniel chapter 11, verse 20, listen to what it says. It says, There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. This is talking about the next Caesar that came on the scene. And... Um, Augustus was indeed a raiser of taxes. Now, this ties a little bit into the gospel story because you will remember that uh, Mary and Joseph had to travel when Mary was pregnant. They had to travel to Bethlehem because they had to go to the place where they could be counted. And Augustus had passed that law that everyone was to go to their city of birth to be counted so that he could raise taxes in the kingdom. Now, Caesar Augustus was reigning um, at the time that Jesus was born. And so we read about uh, Caesar Julia, uh, Julius Caesar that, and how his life ended. And then we learn about Caesar Augustus that was a raiser of taxes in the time of Jesus. It fits perfectly with the story of history. Now look at the next verse, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 21 and 22, because this describes the next Caesar that came on the scene. Verse 21 and 22. And in his place, in the place of Augustus, shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And listen to the next sentence. This is an important one. And also the prince of the covenant. 
Now, who was the next Caesar that followed Augustus? Now, you look at, you look at history, and the next Caesar was none, uh, was none other than Tiberius. Now, Tiberius was not very popular in the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, he was indeed a vile person, and people didn't really you know, esteem him very high. It was under the rule of Tiberius that Jesus was crucified. Now, going back, a ver- going back to this verse here, what does it say? The prince of the covenant would be broken. Who is the prince of the covenant? It's Jesus Christ. And he was broken right under, he was put to death under the rulership of Tiberius Caesar. This is fascinating to see that these are prophecies that have been given hundreds and hundreds of years in advance. And they are so accurate and so amazing that we see history unfolding itself just as God had foretold it. Now, let's go to the next verse, Daniel chapter 11, verse 23 to 26. And again, we have um, a description here of how Rome actually worked, how this... um, kingdom of Rome, this emperor of Rome, really became so mighty and so significant in the world. Listen to the description uh, of this power. It says the following, and after the liege is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. For he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. See, the Roman Empire began with a small number of people. It was the Romans there in Rome. They they were not very significant, and yet they became bigger and bigger and greater and grander and more mighty and more powerful. How did it all happen? They acted deceitfully. They acted deceitfully. In many ways, they they entered into agreements with nations around them um, in which they would give, give them privileges if they would give them their strength and their support financially and also, of course, militarily. And then in turn, they would actually just trample upon those people in later times. And this is how Rome conquered and conquered and expanded its, its, emp- its empire. Listen to how the... Um, Description continues there. It says, He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall steer up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And when you look at the way that Rome conquered and expanded, we see how they worked through pacts and treaties with other nations, appearing to want to benefit them, but ultimately controlling them. And these verses also reveal the corruption that existed in the Roman Empire itself. You were never sure of your position. Even the ones that you were eating with on the table could be the very ones that would poison you the next day. Uh, Rome shows over and over again how there was intrigue and there was deceitfulness um, even from within um, the Roman uh, emperor empire. Many of, uh, many of the Caesars were, were killed by their own uh, men. So the conquests of Rome characterized by corruption, deceitful pacts and, treat, and treaties right there described in Daniel chapter 11. And so we come to verse 27, Daniel chapter 11 and verse 27, and it says the following, Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. There was an appointed time that God had set for a specific prophecy to be fulfilled, and that time had not yet come. 
The time prophecy that we're talking about here, as you relate it to other prophecies that you find in the book of Daniel and Revelation, is talking about this time prophecy that we have covered a little bit in a previous presentation, and that is the prophecy regarding the dark ages of papal oppression, which lasted from 538 to 1798 AD. This was a time period of 1260 years in which the papacy ruled and dominated the uh, kings um, of the divided Roman Empire. Now that period was coming. Pagan Rome was going to give way to papal Rome, and yet it was at an appointed time. And Daniel 11 leads us through this transition from pagan Rome to papal Rome, and yet that time had not yet come completely. Listen to how it continues here. We're looking here at a continual struggle from power, basically all the way from Caesar Diocletian, which really ruled in the days of um, the apostles, particularly um, John the Apostle that was exiled to Patmos was under Diocletian, all the way to Constantine. And you might remember what Constantine did because he was, uh, all the emperors that ruled between Diocletian and Constantine were emperors that upheld the pagan gods of the Roman Empire. When you come to Constantine, something changes. Constantine becomes a Christian. And of course, it was a political move to unite his empire. There were more and more Christians, and there were more and more pagans. And what is he going to do? There was always war. There was always dissension. There was always strife. And so what he does is he becomes a Christian, which was really a political move to unite his empire. And so paganism was brought into the church. Some Bible scholars, they refer to this as baptized paganism. The paganism was baptized into the church. It was brought in. And so you had all the worship of the holy saints, which now became, or the worship of the, of, of the gods of, um, of paganism, now became the worship of the saints. And you had the holy candles and the holy water and all these kind of traditions, idol worship, all these traditions that never belonged to Christianity. When you read the Bible, it's plain. There's no, there's no mention of these things. But all this extra, even doctrines that they made up of purgatory and eternal hell and all these theories in order to scare people into serving the church so that the church become, could become powerful and almighty. All these, hap, all these things happened from beginning from the days of Constantine. And so we have this merge of pagan Rome into papal Rome, the merge that we've also seen in all the other prophecies prior to Daniel 11. Now, take notice of how this all comes about. Daniel 11, chapter 20, uh, verse 28. Verse 28, it says, While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. Talking about Constantine, what would he do? He it, What he did was against the holy covenant. This pact, that this treaty that he made, which seemed to be for the Holy Covenant, seemed to be for Christianity, was in reality against Christianity. Because what he did was bringing in uh, paganism, merging paganism with Christianity. And the results of that merge we still see today in many denominations where the traditions of man are placed above the clear teachings of the Word of God. Now, verse 29 says, At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. Something different was going to happen. Constantine, he moved his seat of authority, his capital, from Rome to Constantinople. He moved it, and what did he do? In Rome, he crowned the papacy with power. 
He moved his capital to Constantinople and gave power to the church. And so now the church becomes not only a religious power, but the church becomes also a political power. The unity of church and state, which was now the beginning of the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages that lasted for many, many years. According to Bible prophecy, 1260 years of papal supremacy. Look at verse 30 and 31. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now that phrase is a phrase that we not only find in Daniel chapter 11. The phrase of the daily sacrifices, now that word sacrifices, I must add, is not in the original text. It has been added by the translators, and so we need not note that word in particular. But uh, this power of paganism would take away the daily and place the abomination of desolation. That same phrase that we find here in Daniel 11, we also encountered in Daniel chapter 8. It was this clear transition of paganism to papal to the papal power. As a matter of fact, why don't we go to one verse here just to grasp this a little bit better. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul describes what was going to take place as paganism would make way for papalism. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, chapter 2, and beginning in verse 3. Just a few verses here before we continue in our prophecy in Daniel 11. Listen to what it says. Uh, Paul writing to the church of Thessalonica. He says, let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. The man of sin being the Antichrist, the son of perdition. We already identified this power as the papacy. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you that I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, in other, in other words, what is holding back. Verse 6. That he may be revealed in his own time. So there's something that is restraining, there's something that is, hold, uh, that is holding back from this power being fully revealed. And then verse 7 tells us what that is. Verse 7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So there's one power that will make way for another power. In Daniel chapter 8, it talks about the daily being taken away and the abomination of desolation set up. Daniel chapter 11 in this verse talks also about the daily taken away and the abomination of desolation set up. Now the word daily comes from the Hebrew word tamid, which means continual. So there were some continual rituals that paganism was involved in, uh, pagan gods, pagan sacrifices, pagan religions. This religion, this daily continual um, service of paganism would be taken away and it would make place for the abomination of desolation. It would make place, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, for the Antichrist power. So one is making way for another. Now when you think about taking away, actually a better way of describing it is really that it was absorbed. You see, if I have my Bible here and you can all see it, and then I put it behind my jacket here, it is still there, but you don't see it anymore. It's taken away. 
It's taken away, but it's actually now under my jacket. And so you can think of like paganism being there, and then it's taken away, but it's not really gone. In essence, it's absorbed by the papacy, and paganism continues to exist in the papal church. The traditions of man are replacing the commandments of God and the ways of God. Church and state unites in 508 AD uh, was the first event that led up to the church and state unity. And that was that one of the kings of Europe, which was King Clovis, he um, had a great big army. He was the king of the French. And he um, actually uh, gave his authority to the papacy. He surrendered to the, to the papacy. He was also baptized and um, fully um, taken into the Catholic Church, into the Roman Church. Now, what happened from 508 onward, other kings in Europe started doing the same thing. Kings in Europe gave their stately power, their final authority to the Church of Rome. And the Church of Rome was becoming more and more and more powerful, leading up to the year 538, in which it, in which it began to rule um, as a church and a state united. Now, verse 32, listen to what it says, Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Now, during this period of dark ages, during this period of corruption and flattery, at the same time, there were people that were doing great exploits for God, great missions for God. And of course here, during the dark ages, in which the Bible is uh, unlawful to own, even on the penalty of death, and many people are burnt on the stake, I mean, we're talking here about millions of people. Sometimes we look at some of the atrocities of the past, and we talk about the First World War, we talk about the Second World War, and surely they were great atrocities. But if you look at this period of time, millions upon millions upon millions of people lost their lives. It is estimated that up to between 100 and 200 million people lost their lives directly through the Church of Rome, directly or indirectly through the Church of Rome during this period because they stood upon a platform of truth. They believed that the Bible was understandable for man and that the Bible was the last word and not the Church of Rome. They believed that the Bible was accessible to man and that it, could not only, it was not only for the clergy because Rome said the Bible is for the clergy and it is to be preached in Latin only. And so you have the Reformation that begins on the Martin Luther and Swingley and, 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 and Calvin and many of these Melanchthon and many of these mighty men. They stand up and they said, it is the word of God. We are justified by grace and not by penance and works to Rome. And so here we have the Reformation. So beautifully described there in Daniel chapter 11 that there would be those that would do great exploits for God. I pray that we may do also exploits and missions for God today. As we reach out with the word of God, the sure platform of truth. Listen to what it says in verse 33 to 34. And those of the people who understand, this is talking about scriptural understanding, those of the people who understand shall instruct many. During the Reformation, it was a period of darkness, but it was also a period of light. Because during the Reformation, um, even though the Bible was kept from the people, more and more people stood up against the Church of Rome, against the tyranny of Rome that had lasted for many decades, and they started teaching the truths of Scripture, and many were instructed. It also tells us here, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and famine, by captivity and plundering. There was a great persecution, and yet there was also a time of great instruction in the Word of God. 
Now when they fall, they shall be added, aided with a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. This is, this is an interesting part of the story. You might remember that when Martin Luther stood up against the ty- tyranny of Rome, that he was... Uh, he was um, asked to come before a council, um, the council known as the Council of, of um, the Diet of, at Worms, and he came to that place and he stood before the princes of Germany and he had to give an account of what he believed, an account of what he was teaching. And he stood firmly against Rome and put his faith in God's word alone. Many of the princes that were present there and the governors of the country, they sided with Martin Luther, some of them because they believed what he was teaching, others merely because they saw it as a beneficial allegiance to overthrow the yoke of Rome that they had been experiencing for many decades. And so the Bible says that many would join them by intrigue. So or other translations say is by flattery. And that's exactly what happened. And so we have here the Dark Ages, persecution, but also instruction and spreading of the word. A powerful, powerful time of revival during those, during those years. Verse 35, it says, And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. The appointed time that is, every time that is coming back to in this prophecy is the time prophecy of the 1260 years, which we find in many other places in Daniel and Revelation. As a matter of fact, in the book of Daniel and Revelation, this time prophecy is given seven times. Seven times you have the time period given of 1260 years of papal oppression from 538 to 1798 AD. It talks here about that time would be an appointed time. It would be an appointed time and it would come. It would come soon. The time of the end, there was, there was as it were, a countdown to the prophetic, of the prophetic clock towards the end of papal oppression, which ultimately um, was overthrown in the year 1798. Verse 36 and 37, it goes on to describe a graphic description of the papacy. Now the king of the north is not the Syrian king, it's not Antiochus, it's not Seleucus. The king of the north is not pagan Rome, the Caesar Augustus or or Tiberius. Now the king of the north, for the rest of the chapter here, is a clear description, a graphic description of the church of Rome, of the papacy. Now listen to this graphic description here from verse 36 to 37. It says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He, will. he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemous against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now think about that description for a moment. The papacy claims that they hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. And you think about this graphic description, the monks of the Catholic Church were not allowed to marry, to to be given in marriage. Exactly what the prophecy said, that that there was to be no desire for women. It also went on to describe there the idol worship that was endorsed by the Roman Catholic Church and even how they owned land and then lent it out to the people in order to control the people. 
And this all is leading towards this time of the end, or the time uh, that the the time of the end that then begins in 1798, as the um, papacy um, unity of church and state is then abolished. Now look at verse 38 and 39. It, it continues to describe the works of Rome, the works of the Roman Church. It says, "But in their place he shall honor a god of fortress and a god which his fathers did not know." He shall honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. There you have the idol worship. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god which he shall acknowledge and advance his glory, its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. There you have the division of the land in which they ruled the land and would, would then give it to the people but kept the control over the nations. We see in the Catholic Church the statues of the Virgin Mary and saints that are very prominent. The um, many, many idols that are really can be traced back, of course, to the days of paganism and the merge of Constantine. Now, look at verse 40, because here we again come to an important transition, which really leads, leads us into the final um, chapter of, of, of this big story, of this prophecy. Uh, ver- uh, Daniel chapter 11 has a total of 45 verses, and the last five verses from verse 40 to 45 is now bringing us to this end time scenario. What we've looked at so far is really all behind us. We are living here in 2011. The prophecy of Daniel 11 started with Darius. Now, that was in the time of Medo-Persia. This was long, long time ago. Then it moved, you know, to to Greece, and it talked about Alexander the Great, and then it moved to the Syrian wars and this great, great period of time when the king of the north, Seleucus, was battling with the king of the south, Ptolemy. With all, all of that is past. We have also witnessed through history the coming and the uprising of pagan Rome and ultimately also the corruption in Rome and how it came to a fall. We have also witnessed the rising of papal Rome, which had dominion over a long period of time during the Dark Ages. We are beyond that year 1798 when the papacy was abolished. We are beyond that. We are living here in the year 2011. And the prophecy continues to describe what was going to happen from 1798 onward, even unto the very coming of Jesus. And so let's look at these last five verses here in Daniel 11 as it becomes very interesting because now we come to the very days in which we are living. As a matter of fact, the last five verses are to be understood a little bit different than the rest of the prophecy because it is talking about end time language. Uh, It begins with the following. It says, at the time of the end, so now this appointed time has come, the king of the south shall attack him. Now, when it says the time of the end, the time of the end began in 1798, and of course, it's still continuing now until Jesus Christ comes again. With the abolishment of the papal government and the um, abolishment of church and state, prophecy points to that as the beginning of the time of the end. And so look at what it says. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, with many ships, and shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. The language of Daniel chapter 11 continues with this uh, pictorial, uh, now becoming more symbolic language of north and south. It's not, it, still we're talking about the king of the north. 
Still we're talking about the king of the south, but now in an end time setting, this becomes more symbolic because we know that you know, ultimately um, the king of the north being the papacy is not necessarily in the north anymore. It is a global power that has now um, um, enveloped the entire earth. And also the powers that um, opposed the papacy, as we're going to see here in 1798, was not necessarily a southern south geographically from Rome. As a matter of fact, the power that attacked them was a northern power. It was France that abolished the papal unity in 1798. So we're now moving a little bit away from the graphical description of things to an end time setting where it becomes symbolic language. That's why in the book of Revelation, when you look at a lot of the book of Revelation, and we're going to get there as as we go through these presentations, a lot of the language is terminology and names from the Old Testament, but in an end time setting. And so in the book of Revelation, you read about Babylon. You know, you read about um, this, uh, this woman that is described as a harlot. And all this is symbolic language portraying systems and powers in the world. And so as we continue, bear that in mind as we look at what takes place here. The king of the south is attacking the king of the north in verse 40. And ultimately in 1798, which is the beginning of the time of the end, that appointed time, indeed the pope is taken captive by Berchet, which was the commander of Napoleon, and the unity between church and state was abolished in 1798. And yet this was not the end of the papacy. The papacy was removed from the scene of, 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 um, of the world for a while, and yet it returned with even greater force and greater power. The, the Bible tell, told us there in verse 40 that the king of the north would come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, it says, horsemen with many ships. So the king of the north, though it was defeated for a moment, it would come back with even greater, greater force. This is, by the way, a prophecy that corresponds with the prophecy found in Revelation chapter 13, where it talks about this beast power, which is also uh, an identification mark of the papacy, where it received a deadly wound, and then it says that the deadly wound was healed. So there's a healing of the wound. There's this power that received a deadly wound that, that was taken into captivity but has, again, become very, very significant um, over even over uh, recent years and even during our generation. Look at verse 41. Look at the description of what this king of the north, the papacy, will do in the last days. It says in verse 41, He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, again here, we're not dealing with literal nations any longer. And so the fact that some will escape is really a prophecy that corresponds with another prophecy we find in the book of Revelation, where it talks about that a remnant will remain faithful to God. A remnant will keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus Christ. There will be those that will not fall under the oppression of Rome in these last days. As a matter of fact, this is really a typology that you're reading about here of also things that happened in the past, because when you look at those nations that are mentioned there, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, these are really nations that were somehow related to Israel, like Edom comes from the word actually Esau, which, Esau, which was the brother of Jacob, and Moab and Ammon were the nations that came out of the daughters of Lot, and you might remember that story as well. So these are people that were somehow related to Israel and yet had 
drifted away, and they would and um, seemingly had come under the the power of the enemy, and now they are escaping. So this is a whole typology picture of a final escape in the last days. There will be many that are found in various denominations and churches and people and nations and tongues and kindreds and of all around the world that will see the oppression of Rome and that will decide to not partake of it, but to worship God and follow his word. There will be an escape. Many countries will be overthrown. Many denominations will be ruled. There's an ecumenical movement going on where churches are uniting under the banners of Rome, and yet there will be those that will escape. There will be those that will stand upon the word of God. That's really what the prophecy is predicting and showing. The papacy increases its influence in the religious and political world. No doubt that's exactly what we are um, witnessing around us. We have seen how even the last pope, uh, Pope uh, John Paul II, um, he uh, had a great influence in the world through all his traveling. And certainly also the pope that is in power now is, is increasing in authority, both not only in religious matters, but even more and more also in political matters. Now look at verse 42. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 42. We're coming towards the end now. It says, He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. So the papacy, as he's on this move to gain um, world dominion, and there are other scriptures that tell us that, he, that he, all the world wondered after this power. It says that even the land of Egypt would not escape. Now, this is not necessarily talking about literal Egypt that would not escape. But when you look at the characteristics of Egypt, they were always known for the nation that denied the existence of God. As a matter of fact, you might remember when Moses came before Pharaoh and said, let my people go when they were in captivity in Egypt. The Pharaoh answered and said, I do not know the Lord. Neither will I let the people go. So Egypt is known as this God-denying land. Um, we could almost say atheism, a God-denying uh, nations in this world. Even they will not escape the hand of the papacy. The papacy will have such a power in the last days that according to prophecies found in the book of Revelation, that there are only really two options available or two options are there just prior to the coming of Jesus. And that is the mark of the beast or the seal of God. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground where, well, I'm not sure what this or that. Revelation pictures two decisions in the end of time. The mark of the beast or the seal of God. The mark of the papacy or the mark of God, the seal of God. Now, what that exactly is, we'll get into in a future presentation. But this is really the two options that we encounter in the last days. Verse 43, it says, He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver... And over all the precious things of Egypt, also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. This power, the papacy, would not only have religious power, but take notice, it talks about treasures of gold and silver. The richest, one of the richest organizations upon this planet is the papal church. The papacy is a rich and influential power and they have gold and silver and precious things. And then it says the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. When you look at the history of the Old Testament, oftentimes the Libyans and Ethiopians were employed as a military force to help other nations. Interestingly enough, at the end of the ages, as we see the papacy rising to world dominion, it will, of course, again need not only political strength and not only financial strength, but also military power. 
Now, there's a whole prophecy in Revelation chapter 13 that we will get to in a future presentation that deals exactly with the nations that will um, give their power to the Antichrist in the final days of Earth's history. So the papacy has economical, military, political, and religious power in the final moments on this, of this earth's history, in the final moments of prophecy. Verse 44, we're coming to the last two verses now. Verse 44 says, and this is one of the most exciting verses in the entire chapter. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire chapter. Verse 44, listen to what it says. It says, but... It's almost like here there's a hold. It seems that like, like this, this, this power, this king of the north, the papacy, is gaining and gaining and gaining and increasing and increasing. And its power is becoming so great that no one seems to be able to resist this power. And then we have the word, but. Something is going to hinder. It says, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him, trouble the papacy. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. What is this news from the east and the north that troubles the papacy, that really causes the papacy to, uh, to become so furious to go out and destroy those that bear that message? Well, in the book of Revelation, and let me read to you this, this verse quickly. In Revelation chapter 7, remember that the book of Revelation is the twin book of, Revel of, of the book of Daniel. In Revelation chapter 7, we read about a message, an angel, which is a symbol of a message or a messenger, coming from the east. And listen to what this messenger, uh, listen to the message that this angel bears. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, And after these things I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. These are really the final events. God's angels are holding things in place just prior to the second coming of Christ. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So just prior to the coming of Christ, there will be a message coming from the east, not particularly that we're talking here about a literal uh, geographical direction, but we're talking about a message, a symbolic message that will be preached worldwide of a sealing message. God's children, God's followers will be sealed with the seal of God. And the Bible tells us that that seal is none other than the commandments of God. The commandments of God that will be, there will be an obedient people that will not walk in the footsteps of the papacy, that will not follow the Antichrist with all its pomp and power, but will stand on the word of God and they will receive the seal of God. They will preach a message. They will unmask the deceptions of Rome. They will preach prophecies as Martin Luther did and many others. There will be a new reformation. There will be a new revival and many will be, will be uh, won through this revival and reformation and the papacy with all its pomp and power and glory will go forth to annihilate or destroy these messengers. But praise God for the last verse because as he goes forth to destroy these messengers, listen to what it says. The message of the seal of God, it enrages the king of the north. And then the last verse, verse 45, it says, and he, the king of the north, shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. 
So the papacy will come and he will plant his very army. He will come with all his force and he will stand before the glorious holy mountain. The glorious holy mountain is a symbol or a picture of God's glorious holy people. They are, you might remember the story of Gideon. Gideon, you know, he um, was oppressed. The nation of Israel was oppressed by the Midianites and the Amorites. And they had invaded the land and there seemed no way out. And Gideon, he blowed the trumpet and he called the people and eventually he ends up with an army of 300. There were not many, but 300 faithful that went with him. And they stood upon a mountaintop and they looked down on the valley and there the enemy was everywhere. As long as you could look, as far as you could look. The enemy, according to the Bible, it describes that it was like the sand of the sea. They were everywhere. And yet God wrought a deliverance for Gideon and his men. And the enemy was confused and, the, and they started uh, killing themselves and there was confusion in the camp and they came to fall before the men of Gideon. My friends, as we come to the end of earth's history, as we come to the final scenes of prophecy, as we come to the final fulfillment of these verses in Daniel chapter 11, you can be sure that when you side with God, you are on the winning side. That when you choose to follow Jesus and to stand symbolically on that glorious holy mountain, on the glorious holy truth of God's word, that everything that is arrayed against you, every challenge, every opposition, even the mighty monarchs and kings and powers of this world will come to fall before the one that is mightier than them all, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. So I pray that you will be amongst those that will stand on that glorious holy mountain in that day. Let's pray in closing. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for these amazing prophecies. We thank you for being with us as we have studied Daniel chapter 11. It's been a long journey. It's been a lot of information. But Lord, we are so inspired to see the fulfillment of your word, not only in the past, in history, but also the inspiration and motivation that it gives to us as we see that we are living in stupendous times, that we're living in important moments, and that there are decisive things on the horizon. And Lord, we want to take a stand for truth. We want to take a stand for your word so that we will be amongst those that will stand on that glorious holy mountain in that day. Thank you so much that you are willing to guide us all the way. As you guided your people of the past, so you have promised to guide us as well. And so we commit ourselves into your hands, praying and believing that you will do everything that you promised. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.